New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The octopus is an animal with venom like a snake, a beak like a parrot, and ink like an old-fashioned pen. It can weigh as much as a man and stretch as long as a car, yet it can pour its baggy, boneless body through the opening the size of an orange. It can change color and shape, and it can taste with its skin. Does an octopus have consciousness? Is it possible to reach another mind with our human mind on the other side of that divide? Our guest today wanted to meet an octopus. She wanted to touch an alternate reality and explore a different kind of consciousness. What is it like to be an octopus? Is it anything like being human? Is it even possible to know? We'll be exploring these and many other questions today with our guest, Cy Montgomery. Cy Montgomery is a naturalist, documentary scriptwriter, and author of many books, which often include stories of her encounters with animals. To research her books, films, and articles, Cy Montgomery has been chased by an angry silverback gorilla in Zaire and bitten by a vampire bat in Costa Rica worked in a pit crawling with 18,000 snakes in Manitoba and handled a wild tarantula in French Guiana. Her most recent book explores the consciousness of octopuses titled The Soul of an Octopus, a surprising exploration into the wonder of consciousness. Join us for the next hour as we explore the emotional and physical world of the octopus with our guest, Cy Montgomery. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Cy, welcome. Thrilled to be here, Justine. It's my pleasure to have you. The last time we were together, we talked about a more domesticated animal, the pig, Christopher Hogwood. (laughs) And in this new book, you've been exploring a very different consciousness than humans, or even mammals, the octopus. So, and, and it even lives in a totally different environment that lives in the sea rather than in air. So, tell us, uh, how did you choose this subject to study? Well, most of my books have looked at terrestrial mammals, creatures who, like us, live on the land and breathe air and possess skeletons. But most animals on our planet 
are actually marine invertebrates who live in the sea, who don't have backbones, and who breathe water. So I thought it was about time that I get to know an animal more like most of life on Earth. Here I called myself a naturalist, and I was very restricted, because as you probably know, most most of our planet is water. 70% of the surface area of the globe is sea, but 90% of its habitable space is ocean. You know, uh, people, most of us have a kind of prejudice against fish or invertebrates as far as, like, well, they don't have personality. I mean, we we know that the wonderful naturalist Jane Goodall has helped us establish the, the study of the individual personalities of chimpanzees. And so we don't think of fish or or these these marine animals as having personalities. So you've discovered something quite quite astounding that they actually do. Can you say something about that? Oh, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought up Jane Goodall. Um, she was the subject of my first book, Jane and Diane Fossey and Veruta Geldikas, her scientific sisters. Um, and inspired me throughout my life. And you're so right. Her recognizing that chimps had individual personalities was absolutely the key to understanding these animals. Now you cannot study any animal without figuring out who's who and recognizing that that individuality counts. Well, I wanted to do as she did and get to know a marine invertebrate, as an individual. And not only was I interested in learning what scientists had to say, reading up on it, um, looking at the experiments that have been done on their behavior, etc., but like Jane did with her chimps at Gombe, I wanted to use my heart, my intuition, my emotion also as a tool of inquiry. So I went into this book wanting to make friends with an octopus, to see if this was possible. And the first time I actually met an octopus, I was astonished at how obvious it was that I was dealing with a thinking, feeling individual. That the first time I met my first octopus, whose name was Athena, the aquarius Scott Dowd lifted up the lid on her tank. And... She saw me. I saw her eyes swivel in its socket and lock onto my face. She chose, because she was curious, to come over to my side of the tank, leaving her lair. She changed color to bright red, which is the color of an excited octopus. And then her arms started rising up out of the water, and I saw her beautiful white suckers reaching for me. So... Instantly, I plunged my hands and arms into the cold water of her tank, and soon we were just all over each other. We were so curious about each other, and I could see that intelligence. I could see that curiosity, and she, I believe, could see this in me, and this was the astonishing thing. We are so remarkably distant from octopus when you look at the last time we, we shared a common ancestor. It was half a billion years ago. Everybody was a tube back then. There were no eyes. I mean, 
they evolved their eyes separately from our evolving our eyes. We are so different from them that you'd have to go to outer space or to science fiction to come up with a creature more different than us. Their bodies seem to be inside out. They taste with their skin. They've got three hearts. They've got blue blood. Their, their brains are wrapped around their throat. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And yet, you can be friends with someone like that. And I think that's a revelation. You know, I'm thinking, Sai, m- many years ago, octopus was been, had the nomenclature, the devil fish. And do you, can you tell us how that actually um, came about, why, why they were called devil fish? Well, I think it was two things. Um, octopuses, since about the time of Christianity, um, began to be vilified in Western thought. Uh, before that, they, they were revered across many cultures, but um, this changed. And many of us have read Victor Hugo's description of them in Toilers of the Sea as these like monstrous, slimy, awful things that just suck the lifeblood out of you. Also, um, there's a cool thing that octopuses can do. They can change the texture of their skin. And they can erect these little papillae, these these little bumps all over their skin. But right over their eyes, they can erect two of them that almost look like little horns. And that may have added to calling them devil fish as well. They are certainly not of the devil, and they aren't even fish. Exactly. And I'm just wondering, too... You talk about them changing colors, and I know that they blend in with their environment, And but they are actually colorblind. So it's like phenomenal. How can they blend in with their environment when they can't see the color of their environment? That, that, that's mystifying. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question, and very intriguing evidence now suggests that possibly... They can see with their skin. Wow, see with their skin. And so when Athena was exploring you with her her arms, she was seeing you. Is that what you're saying? Well, they can see with their eyes also very well. They have what they're called um, camera eyes like ours. Insects like flies, have you ever seen how it looks like they have like a whole bunch of different lenses and that's called a compound eye? Um, flies and other insects actually see very well because if you've ever tried to swat one, you can see how good they are at it, but they see the world in a different way. Their eye functions in a different way. Interestingly, octopus eyes function a lot like human eyes, but they don't have color vision. So she was definitely seeing my face, um, what I was wearing, what I looked like up through the water in the same way that if I were in the water looking up through the water at you, I would see, but not in color. Their color perception may be coming through their skin. And that is just so bizarre, but then we know for sure that they can taste with their skin. And that is one reason why Athena was reaching her suckers up to grasp my skin with hers. She was feeling me and tasting me at the same time. And they're very strong, aren't they? I mean, you have to be a bit careful. I mean, she she could pull you into the tank easily. She's very strong, right? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. A three-inch diameter sucker on a big male can lift 30 pounds, and there are 200 suckers on each of the octopus's eight arms. <laughs> so, they're very Well, you never win that battle, right? <laughs> no. But, you know, people ask me, like, weren't you afraid? Here's this very strong animal. Well, look at riding a horse. <laughs> um, there's, look, look at your friend who's, who's a six-foot-tall male human. They're much stronger than we are, but um, they're not out to hurt you. And I didn't feel that Athena was out to hurt me. She wasn't, in fact. Um, her, her strength Im- impressed me, but I never got the feeling, even when she was kind of pulling on me, and, and she was actually kind of pulling me into her tank a little bit, and I had another octopus, Octavia, do that the first time we met. It was pretty certain that she, she just wanted, she was tugging on me, but I was never afraid. Because I, I could, I didn't feel any aggression from from either one of these animals. And what's interesting is, when you're dealing with a mammal, most of the time, you can tell how that animal is feeling about you. At least I certainly can. Um, right. You you can tell even if you don't know how to read the position of the ears or the tail or whatever it is. I did kind of wonder, like, am I going to be able to read this? Right. Um, an octopus. Let's talk about that in just one moment. I want to tell our listeners that I'm here with Cy Montgomery, and she is the author of The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness. And if you want to know more about the work of Cy Montgomery, you can go to her website, cymontgomery.com, and she spells her name S-Y Montgomery. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Cy Montgomery, a naturalist and an author and someone who has been studying different animals for many, many decades now. And her newest book is called The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness. And we're talking about the octopus, you could feel that you were safe with this octopus, with Athena and others that you met. You never really felt threatened. Is is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And that was pretty neat because, as I was as I was saying, you know, when you're with a dog or with your horse or, or a pig or, or a person you've never met, often you kind of depend on all kinds of cues that we're reading without even thinking about it. 
that they're happy, they're sad, they're angry, they're, they're, you know, could I read that with an octopus? Well, apparently, apparently I could, and apparently they can read us the same way, because octopuses definitely take strong dislikes to some people and other people they like. And I've seen this because I have, I've brought other friends behind the scenes to the aquarium to meet the octopuses that I've known. And it's, it's well known by keepers and people who've studied these animals that they're individuals with individual tastes just like everybody else. And some octopuses just don't like you. <laughs> and they don't bite you or hurt you because they don't like you, but they will blast you in the face with freezing cold salt water. So they really, so they have this mechanism, and 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 it'll it'll show up. One of the things that I was um, interested in, Sai, I was surprised to know that the lifespan of an octopus is not that long, and so you befriend these different personalities. I mean, they each had a personality, as you've described in your book. And you get attached to them, and then, but they're not with us so long. Can you can you speak about that? Yeah, it just it breaks your heart. It's it's terrible. But you know, I I have to believe that they get all their living done by living fast and dying young. Um, that's another way in which octopuses are so different from us. We live such a long time. And we have our young when we are young. They do it the other way. They only live three to five years, it's thought. And that's for the giant Pacific. Some of the smaller ones live even even shorter lives. And they lay their eggs at the very end of their life. And they spend the last months of their lives guarding, defending, and cleaning their eggs. And if they're lucky, they'll be able to literally use some of their last breaths to help blow the baby octopuses out of the eggs and out of the den into the ocean where they'll become part of the floating plankton and then grow into adult octopuses. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like one of the signposts of of consciousness and awareness is a sense of play. And I'd love for you to tell any story you can about how octopuses have shown the ability to actually play. Oh, yeah. This has actually been reported in scientific journals. And the incident that was, that was reported was observed by Roland Anderson um, at the Seattle Aquarium. And he had been giving several octopuses little pill bottles to, not to play with, but he wanted to, to see what kind of colors and textures they seemed to prefer. And first he saw one octopus do this really distinctive behavior. The octopus was using her jet to shoot or move the floating pill bottle into the current of water that was created by the filter. And that current shot the water around the tank, and, you know, it's circulating in the tank, and it brought the little pill bottle right back to the octopus, who then used her jet to shoot it right back again into that same current so it would bounce back to her. It was exactly like you or I 
or, or a, a kid would bounce a ball against a wall just for fun. And then Rowan saw other octopuses doing this. They love to play so much that now there's an enrichment manual that everybody who keeps an octopus in captivity is supposed to use to make sure that they don't get bored. And it suggests that you give your octopus the same kind of toys that your children play with. They love Legos. They love to play with Mr. Potato Head. They pull Mr. Potato Head's eyes off and they put them where the mouth is supposed to be, and they, and sometimes they'll hand pieces of Mr. Potato Head to other animals in the tank. <laughs> They're a riot. And at New England Aquarium, uh, to keep our octopuses occupied, uh, we had a fabulous inventor, a very good friend of mine now. His name is Wilson Menashe, who whose job it was to invent a toy worthy of an octopus's intellect. It was essentially a puzzle. He created these clear plexiglass cubes, each with a different locking mechanism. And he would put one inside the other inside the other, like Russian dolls. And the octopus would figure out how to open each one of those locks, one after the other, to get to a delicious crab that it could eat inside. Oh, that's such an amazing story that they they really have that kind of intelligence. And I know you tell a story of... I believe it was Octavia. She it just made me laugh out loud how she stole a bucket of fish right out from under you all. Do you remember that story? Oh, my gosh, yeah. I was there with, with a radio crew from um, a show called Living on Earth, and there were six of us watching Octavia. We were feeding her. We were petting her. Three of us had our hands in the tank touching her, and there were three others who were standing around doing nothing but watching this octopus. We were loving petting her. We were watching her change color. We were watching the incredible way she moved. And then we thought, oh, you know what, let's give her another fish. That would be fun to do. And we looked down, where's the bucket? Well, right while six people were watching her, she had stolen the bucket and no one had seen it. And she hadn't just stolen it to eat the fish because she dropped the fish. She wanted the bucket as a toy. And she was holding it underneath her so no one could see she even had it. It was hilarious. Oh, my gosh. So that also speaks to their ability to multitask and how each arm even can have its own personality. Yeah, that's actually um, the idea of... of some researchers who've suggested that there are some bold arms and some shy arms. And talk about multitasking, Justine, you just use exactly the right word for this. I mean, they put texting teenagers to shame. Octopus's neurons are not all in their brain. In fact, most of their neurons are in their arms. And even if something happens that an octopus's arm actually becomes severed from their body, which they can grow back, by the way, perfectly. But if that arm is severed, the arm can go off and do stuff. I mean, eventually it's going to die because the octopus's three hearts are left in the body, and you need to have a heart to keep your blood going. And, you know, their whole digestive system and all their organs are, are back with the rest of the octopus. But the arm can go off and, and reasonably do stuff, and that completely blows my mind. They, they can. Uh, 
however, uh, live outside of water for brief periods of time. Is this, is this correct? Right, for minutes, not hours. But, yeah, and they come out of their tanks not infrequently in captivity, which is why you want to have a good lid on. If there's even the tiniest hole, your octopus is going to get out. And, I mean, maybe if the octopus can do stock trades for us, this will be beneficial. But most of the time, (laughs) the octopus is going to get into trouble, and you are not going to like it. There's so many aquariums that tell stories of octopuses that got out of their tank in order to crawl into an adjacent tank, eat the inhabitants, and in some cases, people swear the octopus got back in its own tank. So in the morning, when the Aquarius come in, they're like looking at the octopus, and the octopus is like, who, me? And, you know, the flounder in the tank next door completely gone. Oh, that's so funny. And I know you tell another story of an octopus, like sometimes they'll, if you're trying to catch it with a net to transfer it or something, they will use that net like a trampoline. Oh, yeah. This is with the smaller species. Um, This is just so weird. There's octopuses come in all different sizes, as you can imagine, and all different kinds of of shapes. There's deep-sea ones. There's ones with ears like Dumbo. There's ones that, as adults, never get bigger than something that would fit on the tip of your finger. Um, We're talking here about some small, like almost pocket octopuses, little, little octopuses. And at Middlebury College in Vermont, many people who attend the school don't even know that there's an octopus lab, but there is. And when the students would be fishing the octopuses out of their tanks to make them run mazes in a different tank, the octopus would be able to use that net to boing out away, fly out away from the student, and then get on the ground and run away. Like a cat would run away. Can you imagine seeing that? I've never seen anything. I've, I've never seen that. But, oh, my gosh, it just seems so otherworldly. Just in, in, I just in my imagining this eight-armed creature just scurrying across the floor, it just must, I, it just must be a riot. I know. It really cracks you up. And these students, you know, they... They very easily recognize the individual personalities of the octopuses, and um, one of them was always uh, just so affectionate. This octopus would reach up with, with some of its arms, almost like a baby asking to be picked up or a puppy being asked to pick up, because he loved to interact with you. Another octopus that the students were dealing with, they called her the bitch. Because she always caused trouble for them. And one of the students that I interviewed said that this this octopus actually doused her with freezing cold salt water when she was wearing her nice suit, when she was making her final presentation and was being filmed and everything. The octopus would do everything in her power to louse up the students' experiments and stuff. Oh, my goodness. That's great. I I know you described one uh, octopus that would uh, pull the magnet off of the inside of her tank and throw it out, like to make this noise, 
like uh, to, to to like a, a ringing for her butler, uh, her human to come. <laughs> it would totally summon the owner. The octopus was brilliant. It was you know birds do stuff like that. Birds, um, particularly birds who can talk, they'll call. Um, like the dog, here, Fido, here, Fido, in the voice of the owner, and the dog comes running in. Um, they'll call their owner. They'll do things like, you know, they'll, they'll bang their, their, their beaks on something hard, and the owner would come running in. Octopuses can't speak, but they can communicate, and they That's know how great. to summon us. That's great. I'm here with Cy Montgomery, and she's the author of The Soul of an Octopus, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Cy Montgomery, and she's the author of The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness. And if you want to know more about her work, you can go to her website, CyMontgomery.com. And she spells her name Cy, S-Y, Montgomery.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. Uh, Sai, you describe in the book that you learned how to scuba dive because you really wanted to experience in some deep way that environment as best you can, that watery environment of the octopus. So describe what it was like to, to learn how to scuba and to be down in the depths in their environment. Well, I, I wasn't the most graceful, quick-learning student in the world. I've got to say that. And for readers, I just want to let readers know that if I can do it, you can do it, too. I had a lot of trouble at first. I had trouble with my ears. I had trouble with my regulator leaking. Um, The regulator was leaking not because there was anything wrong with the regulator, but this is the part that brings the the air to to your mouth from your tank. I was smiling so much at how much I enjoyed being underwater and being able to breathe underwater, that it was ruining the seal that my mouth was supposed to create on the regulator. I, I had some, some trouble with my ears, but that also is something that I've, I've learned to, to handle. So um, I hope people who read the book aren't put off by the problems that I had. But man, once I was able to get into the wild ocean and breathe underwater, it was a transformational experience. It was very close to being in an ecstatic or dreamlike state. You know, when, when we're dreaming, wondrous things happen that couldn't happen in our regular life. Um, colors are often more, more vibrant. Um, shapes are fantastic. Um, all these things are really true while you're awake, when you're under the sea. These things that could not possibly happen above 
in the air, on the ground, will be happening in the sea. And one of those great things is that hundreds and thousands of wild animals will come right up to you. Um, schools of fish will swim right around you. Big animals, too, even big animals like turtles and sharks will swim right past you. And how seldom do we get an opportunity to interact with wild animals that close when we're in the air on the ground? And I just loved it. To be able to to actually, after getting to know octopuses who were living in a, in a tank, that was really that was really great. But getting to see wild octopuses living in the wild ocean, the, the first time I, I actually saw a wild octopus after I surfaced and got back up on the boat, I just wept from the ecstasy of it. It was wonderful. Wow. I you you described there's just one little passage in the book that just struck me. Well, there's so many that did, but but one that I wanted to share with our listeners. And um in this passage you're describing how it is like when uh, a scuba diver is is still on the boat and they're starting to to get into the water and they're walking over in the boat and and um and you say it this way, you say, to see my friends, seasoned, graceful divers looking so pathetically awkward and helpless, so willing to be vulnerable is a shock as they walk shuffling big fins for an entry method called performing the giant stride. In a heartbeat, the diver is reborn swallowed into another reality, transformed from a shambling monster into a being of weightless grace. Is this what happens to the spirit at death when it flies up to heaven? I just I, I just love that piece uh, right there, just as you dis- describe that. And as you just recently described in our program here, how being down in those depths is and being weightless is a very, very special thing. And then to meet a wild octopus and and to have one was it was it you that that had one uh, actually a wild octopus uh, show you its neighborhood? Um, yeah, that was actually the uh, the second time I went diving. Oh, you know what? Actually, I was on snorkel. That was in Morea. And um, my photographer, uh, Keith Ellen Bogan, uh, this was for, this is in our, our book, Soul of an Octopus, but it's also um, expanded in a book for kids called The Octopus Scientist that concentrated on the work of Dr. Jennifer Mather and a team of octopus experts in Morea in French Polynesia. And uh, Keith had gone down on scuba to, to kind of suss things out while the rest of us were using snorkels. And he was shown around by an octopus who almost took him by the hand. And, and this was a, a, an experience that another diver also told me that he had. And later on snorkel, I had the experience with uh, Dr. David Scheel of um, letting an, an octopus just let us follow her around for 
quite a while, and she she just let us hang out with her while she fished around and in coral for something to eat. She turned colors, she jetted, but she was purposely letting us stay with her because they can vanish in an instant if they want. It's the most amazing thing when somebody like that, who's wild and can get away from you and has every reason to, to fear you as a human, instead, it's like saying, welcome to my world. Let me show you around. So it's like she's being a, a tour guide to her neighborhood. She's saying, okay. Exactly, exactly. It, it's, it's the most amazing thing. And they don't all do that. There's just some octopuses that will, will do that. That was the only octopus that I personally had do that to me in two weeks of searching all day to try to find an octopus. But, wow. And, it, of course, it happened like, towards the very end of the, the whole experience. Um, it, was, it was wonderful. And yeah. when I say she, we were close enough to the animal to know what sex she was. So we knew several very intimate things about this particular individual. We knew what sex she was. Um, we also could see that Parts of some of the tips of her arms were, were missing, so we knew that it was, you know, somebody who had, uh, had experienced some trauma. She, she was regrowing those tips of her arms, and she would probably be fine. Um, but she was showing us her, her personality and her, her boldness, and it was just so neat to have those, those two pieces of information about, about her from that brief encounter. You know, uh, in Morea, I think you describe uh, there's a church there that's dedicated to the octopus, right? Yeah, I couldn't believe how lucky I was. What an amazing thing. That was so great. It, it's an eight-sided church, and it originally had been what they call the octopus church. It's, it's now a Christian church. Um, they They don't say anything about octopuses. There aren't images of octopuses in there. But it was um, built on the site of what was thought to have been an octopus shrine. And in, in many um, oceanic cultures, octopuses are revered, and you can certainly see why. Look at the powers that they have. Exactly. And look at the and way they connect people, too, by stretching out those arms. Um, look, look at, and it's funny to see um, how octopuses... They, they, their portrayal and literature, um, their their use as symbols has have changed through the years. Um, shortly, oh gosh, a few hundred years after Christ, the octopus was actually depicted as Satan, as opposed to the god that many other cultures believe that. It was. Mm-hmm. And Maria uh, is in the South Pacific, right? I know my mother was there uh, on a sailing trip. She would sail the South Pacific for six months in uh, 1960. So she was she was in Morea and and other places, Pitcairn and other places like that. So it was it was yeah it was really cool. There was um I, I there's something that that happens at the Seattle Aquarium. That is is called the Valentine Day. They have like more than six thousand visitors come to this uh, Valentine Day. What what is that about? Oh, this is great. 
It is the Octopus Blind Date, and it's held every February 14. And a male and a female octopus, adult octopus, are allowed to meet and mate, one hopes. The problem is, with an octopus blind date, it sometimes can be a dinner date in which one eats the other. And that can be a big problem. I mean, one, you don't really, you know, you, you don't want this to happen to animals in your care. But it, it can happen in the wild. It's worse if it happens in your aquarium, though, because at least in the wild, the octopus can get away. Um, when you're in an aquarium, there's only so far that you can go. But the year that I went, and God bless my husband for letting me leave him on Valentine's Day to go watch octopuses have sex. But the year that I went, the two animals were squirt and rain. And I describe the way that they literally, they, they reach out to one another, they fly into each other's arms, they flush with emotion, the suckers are, are all over each other, six hearts are beating as one. I was describing this um, just orally to a friend of mine when we were on a train headed to New York, a commuter train, and as I described it, my friend Jody noticed that all of a sudden the train was utterly silent. People were listening to this, like, pornographic description of they did not know what. <laughs> it actually was very sensuous. It was lovely. And Squirt and Rain um, had a very gentle, sweet mating. And then, because Seattle Aquarium is right on the water where giant Pacific octopuses live, they were able to let both the male and the female go. And presumably the female then laid her eggs in the wild, and one hopes that they hatched and that the world again got filled up with beautiful giant Pacific octopuses. Oh, that's such a sweet story, and uh, it just uh, to be able to witness that and to witness something that's so successful as this blind date and didn't end in some sort of tragedy, that's so wonderful. I, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Cy Montgomery, who has written about many, many different animals, and uh, this most recent one is about the octopus in her book, The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness. And if you want to know more about her work, go to her website, SyMontgomery.com. And she spells her name S-Y-SyMontgomery.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Cy Montgomery, and she's the author of The Soul of an Octopus. Cy, the lifespan of an octopus is not that long. There are many that that you had um, become attached to, and then you would have to let them go. And I know uh, there was one who did lay eggs, although they weren't fertilized. So she she did lay eggs and was tending her eggs. And can, can you talk about her? And while she was tending her eggs during that period, she wasn't paying a lot of attention to you and, and the other people who kind of became familiar with her in that particular aquarium. But in the end, you thought that maybe she did recognize you. Can you kind of describe her caring for the eggs, and then the end of her life. Oh, yeah. Well, when she laid eggs, it was kind of a bittersweet thing. Her name was Octavia, and I had known her from the moment that she arrived, pretty much, I mean, not the very second that she arrived, but um, I'd I'd known her throughout her tenure at at the aquarium, and um, we were friends. She was always happy to see me. She always came over to my side of the tank and greeted me. But once she laid eggs, the eggs were her whole world. Because in the wild, when an octopus lays eggs, they do so in their secluded den, and they devote the rest of their lives to nothing but cleaning and protecting and tending those eggs. They don't eat. They don't hunt. Now, we could hand her food on a grabber in her lair, and she would take it from the grabber. But since she was in her lair, she could not look up through the water at us. She had a feeling to that lair. So if she saw us at all, it would have been through the front of the glass from the public side. But she was completely obsessed with her eggs, and she did such a great job. She was fluffing them. She was using her her funnel to blast water at them to keep them clean. Well, normally... An octopus would be on eggs. A giant Pacific would be on her eggs for about six months, and then they would hatch. But because there was no Mr. Octopus, these eggs were infertile. But presumably she could not know that. So six months passed. Seven, eight, nine, ten months passed. And still she had not died. The eggs, she's still cleaning them. But she's at the end of her life. They only live so long. And one day I came in and I saw that she had one eye that was terribly swollen. And like us, you know, her body was wearing out. And she had an infection. And Bill decided that it would be best to take her off exhibit and put her somewhere quiet and safe. A lot of times they exhibit behaviors that that look like dementia. She could hurt herself. And if we put her in a quiet, dark place, more like an octopus den would really be, which would be totally dark, that might be better for her, have less stimulation. So he moved her to a barrel. What's funny is he couldn't get his assistant to successfully move her. Bill was the one, the only one, who could get Octavia to agree to move. The minute he put his hand up to her skin. She could taste him. She hadn't tasted his skin for 10 months. And to an octopus whose life is only three to five years, 10 months is decades. 
but she remembered him, and she let go right away and agreed to let him move her. And when I came in the next Wednesday, I was interested to see if she would recognize me and remember me too. So I opened the lid to the barrel, and she came floating right up. I was with my friend Wilson, who knew her well as, as, as well as I did. And she came right up, looked us in the eye, and reached for us with her arms and held on to us one last time. And we'd offered her a fish, but she didn't want it. She just dropped it. And she was old, and she was sick and dying. But she made the effort to come to the top of the barrel to look at us and touch us one last time. Mm. And I think that you say that Wilson actually put his finger in her mouth and 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 the beak of an octopus. I mean, it could she could cut off his finger if she wanted to. Is that right? I mean, that's not a certainly bite. She could certainly bite, and they have venom too. So it could have been not good, but he somehow knew that he could touch her beak, and he would be okay. Hmm. And then I, I know you have another description uh, when you were, uh, were, there was one aquarium that was re- revamping their whole, their whole aquarium. And, and so they had to move many of the species around and transfer them. And you talk about this one, I think it was Callie, that, um, who, the first day of her transfer from this very, like, very simple tank to something that, like, her new habitat that was so it's stimulating. And and then uh, the day she had with that and then the following day was a very sad one. Uh, I'd love for you to describe that. Oh, God, this was awful. Um, it was right before Christmas. And... This was New England Aquarium, and um, I should say right now that that we now at New England Aquarium have a a much larger, vastly expanded tank. But at that time, they were redoing the giant ocean tank, which is the big pillar of the aquarium. And everything was a mess, and um, there was no space for for anything. It was just like, you know, if 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 you needed a bed in a hospital, and the hospital was too crowded. So poor Cully was stuck in this barrel and couldn't be in the larger tank because you can't put two octopuses together um, because they'll eat each other unless, you know, they're going to mate and you still have the problem. And these were two females. I mean, it just wasn't, just was not going to work. We were so eager for her to get into a larger tank. And finally, a larger tank became available. And she got into this tank and she just blossomed. She was thrilled. You could just see this young, vigorous, uh, curious, smart animal thrilled with her new tank. But it's always difficult when you transfer one of these animals to a new place because they are so good at getting out. And tanks have to have a way for the tubes that oxygenate the tank and and create the circulation of water to come in and out of the tank. There was the tiniest of holes that was emitting some of, you know, admitting some of these tubes into her tank, a tiny hole in the cover. And Bill stuffed it, that hole, with the stuff that octopuses don't like. And he put weights and clamps 
so that she couldn't lift the tank lid. But somehow, she got out of this tiny, tiny space between the, the you know, the, the little hole that was admitting the tube. And um, in the morning, they found her on the ground, and she was the wrong color, and she was still alive, and they tried to do artificial respiration, which, with an octopus, involves pouring water rapidly through um, part of their mantle. And they tried to revive her, and they, they just couldn't. And it was very... It was horrible. It was horrible. And the worst... I mean, the worst thing... You can't even begin to list all the bad things about it, but one of the worst was that she died as a result of people trying to do the best they could for this animal under difficult circumstances. She may have died because she hit this Vircon mat, a mat, antimicrobial mat, which is supposed to prevent the transfer of, of, of microbes on your shoes when you walk around behind the scenes. Um, but it's, it's toxic to octopuses. But, you know, who's going to drop your octopus on the Vircon mat? Well... It, it just was a, a confluence of, of yeah. Yeah. bad stuff going on, and it just it broke our hearts. Exactly. Sai, tell me in this last minute, uh, can can you say something? Uh, what what do you consider one of the important lessons that you've learned from the your relationship with the octopus? What I've learned is that our world is so much more animate, so much more exciting, so much more alive than we give it credit for. And if an octopus can think, feel, and know, I think that demands of us that we behave toward the world with new reverence. That's the message I think of this book. Yes, uh, for sure that uh, that we are not alone. We think that we think of ourselves as this uh, ultimate consciousness, but that, as you describe in the book, that there there are these other intelligent, wonderful creatures with whom we're sharing this very precious planet. So I, I just thank you so much for all of your many, many stories, which I encourage our listeners to to look up, not only uh, the Octopus but, uh, book, but, but also your many other books that like The Good, the good, good Pig is another one. And, uh, and I, I think that I, if I remember correctly, you wrote one about the, the bear. For the golden moon bear. And- the golden moon bear, yes. Yes. Yep. You and I talked about that. We did. We did an interview on that. I remember that some years ago. So, uh, so we love following your adventures. Thank you so much for being part of New Dimensions today. I've been speaking with Cy Montgomery. She is the author of The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness. And to know more about her work, you can go to her website, cymontgomery.com. And Cy is spelled S-Y, Montgomery.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3631. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.